Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Virginia Hume, author of the debut novel, Haven Point. Virginia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Jeff. Yeah, sure. If someone hasn't heard about your novel, Haven Point, yet, how would you describe the novel? Haven Point is a family saga. It's the story of three generations of women in the Demarest family. Um, Marin, her daughter Anne, and Anne's daughter Skye, each of whom, for their own reasons and in their own time, have feelings of ambivalence about, or in some cases even antipathy toward the little community on the main coast, the eponymous Haven Point, where the Demarists have spent summers since the late 19th century. Um, Marin eventually makes her peace with the place, but at the end of the summer of 1970, her 17-year-old daughter Anne leaves and vows never to return, a promise she keeps until her untimely death 38 years later. Um, Anne's daughter Skye never really questioned her mother's aversion to Haven Point, which she basically shares. Um, it just seemed like a pretty straightforward culture clash between her mom's very bohemian art teacher and this very waspy, hidebound, insular summer colony. But there was more to it. And after the prologue in which that central mystery, small m mystery, is set up, the full story unfolds through the interwoven narratives of the grandmother, Marin, and the granddaughter, Skye. Um, their two narratives present almost a before and after picture of Anne Demarest. And um, they cover the period from 1944 when... Marin is a cadet nurse um, in Washington, D.C. during World War II and first meets Oliver Demarest um, all the way up to and through that summer of 1970. And then Skye's story um, begins when she's 14 in 1994. Um, Marin introduces the reader to young Annie Demarest, as she was known when she was young, is very charismatic and impulsive and creative um, and mostly joyful. And through Sky Anne's daughter, we see a still charismatic, still impulsive, still creative, but but much more troubled adult. Um, so it's it's lots of family drama, lots of betrayals and reconciliations and grief and triumph as a family will have and and lots of the kinds of interpersonal challenges that one faces in a tiny little, very traditional community like Haven Point. And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Haven Point? I think <laughs> it's hard to say, but I spent my very earliest summers at my grandfather's house on Old Black Point, which is a summer colony on the Connecticut shore. My mother's from Hartford, Connecticut, and I was born there. And he sold the house when I was really small, but I, I'm persuaded something must have gotten into my bloodstream because I've always been drawn to these little communities that people return to year after year. So I really started with setting. Um, and I would say Haven Point is really almost a character in and of itself in this novel. Um, and from there, I thought, gosh, I'd love to write a novel set in a place like this. And then I went to what's the sort of novel I like to read. And I do like a good multi-generational family saga. So um, those were the first two thoughts, and I took it from there. Well, 
Your novel features three generations, as you explain. How did you try to capture the voice and the time period for, for each of the main characters? That's a really good question because it was actually a big challenge. You know, when I initially wrote this, um, it was uh, two-thirds of the novel still, I would say, are, are Marin's story, the grandmother, um, because it covers a lot more territory. Um, I, I considered writing Skye's um, narrative starting when she was younger. Um, as I think I said, she's 14 years old when her chapters <laughs> of her narrative began. And I realized it was it, it, trying to capture the thoughts. It's in third person close of someone so young. It didn't really work because, I mean, I thought I could do it. And I've read novels where authors have attempted that. I just didn't think she would have the kinds of thoughts would form the sorts of thoughts <laughs> when she was much younger that you're trying to convey. Um, I wrote a lot of Sky's story very separately. Um, it was a little bit easier for me, which is odd because Marin's obviously of a different generation, um, to write in Marin's voice. Um, Sky's I found a little harder, but um they're they're extremely distinct in terms of their personalities. And Sky's certainly a more modern character um, and younger. Um, and there were times where I felt like the way I was describing Sky's thoughts that I was slipping in a little bit choked to Marin's voice. So I had to actually go back a lot. There was a lot of editing, especially of Sky's story, for exactly that reason. Well. I'm curious because Haven novel, Haven Point, sorry, Haven Point is a debut novel. What was your writing journey that led you to writing and getting this novel published? So I, so I started Haven Point. It took, it was quite a long journey because I was, <laughs> I was working and had kids when I started this. So it was kind of a side hustle. Um, and I don't, I don't like to say that I always wanted to write a novel because I feel like that sounds so sad. You know, it's like you've had this burning, unfulfilled desire for all of your <laughs> all of your life. I actually came to it after a long career in mostly in politics and public affairs, where I did a lot of writing for my work. Um, it was more like a, a recurrent ambition, though, something that that would pop up, and I think, oh, I'd really like to try that. And I had actually taken a couple of very brief stabs at starting a novel before. Um, I did a lot more talking about writing a novel than actually doing so. <laughs> um, and I had gone out on my own after I spent thirteen years working at a couple different public affairs firms working in communications and had gone out on my own to practice. My kids were at a certain school age where it was just made more sense. And um, I found myself increasingly taking projects that were pure writing projects. Um, I just, I don't know, had, I, I began to appreciate the craft and what I was able to deliver. And um and then I was on vacation and I thought, hmm, I think I'm ready to start this. This time I chose to um, write a novel and not talk about it rather than <laughs> talk about it and not do it. And I will say that worked much better. I mean, it wasn't this big secret that I kept from everybody, but I just made a habit of not talking about it um, beyond friends and a number of people who were 
I'm mean, I, I, not friends, family and a number of friends who were helping me in various ways. And I think that was a good approach. It sort of helped me keep the main thing, the main thing. Um, I, I was, you know, it was something that I didn't, I wasn't sort of publicly identified with. Um, and I think it also helped me do something else, which was useful, which was let go of outcomes. You know, I knew I was, of course I wanted to get it published as my husband will tell you, I don't need another hobby. Um, but I, I, I felt like I had time to kind of wrestle it to the ground and learn. And so I, it developed over, I did have a draft in about a year and a half. Um, and I circulated that among some early readers and got their feedback. And then I went through various rounds of edits, but there were periods where, you know, I had a year where I had a really tricky client, another year where I pulled myself off because I kind of got pulled back into politics and was doing some writing or some magazine work for that. And um, I actually sold it. It's coming out June 2021, but I actually sold it in April of 2019. So it's been quite the long runway to publication. And so what was that actual path to publication? I mean, once you once you had a final draft and and edited and, and you know, feedback from your readers, did you work with a with an agent? And, and how was that process? I did. I did. It's funny. I uh, that I I sometimes think that I took the um keep the main thing the main thing and let go of outcomes a little far because um <laughs> I I approached each step I was like okay time to get an agent how do you get an agent I just didn't do a lot of a ton of research along the way um I did actually one more step there was a point at which I had sent the novel to a friend who works she's not a literary agent herself but she works for or is a she's an attorney who works with literary agents mm-hmm. and she passed it along to someone and the feedback was it was good it got kind of obviously the first person at an agency who reads a manuscript I think is usually pretty junior um and then if I they like it Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, years ago. <laughs> that would be, it would be fun to think you were part of, you know, someone who had, had enough vision to kick something upstairs that was worthwhile. And it did get kicked upstairs. You know, someone had liked it, but then it got passed around. It, it sat there for nine months and it was coincided with the time where I had other work that was keeping me very busy. And the feedback came back and it was a little hard for me to digest. And I wound up working with a professional editor. And that was really helpful. I think that got it into, it's hard for me to say whether, you know, when I sent it out to more agents, um, once I had made the editor suggestions, whether I would have landed an agent if I hadn't done what the editor suggested. Um, so I sent out to a bunch of agents and um, I had actually a couple who were interested but I had gleaned from feedback I'd gotten from others. It was overall, I have to say, a pretty um positive experience i think partly because i expected everyone to say no i mean most people say no um i just you know they're they're reading to say no nobody can take everything and you can only have one agent um but they were such encouraging no's but i could tell there was something that still needed to be done i really had taken it about as far as i could um, I, I had no idea what else I could do. And when it came down to it, both the agents who were interested were terrific. But one 
um, Susanna Einstein, who ended up representing me and who's been wonderful, had just her suggestions for the manuscript um, really resonated with me. I thought they made a lot of sense. So I went through another round of edits, um, <laughs> making Susanna's suggestions, and then she sent it out. Um, yeah, it sold, as I said, in April of 2019, and it was only out for, it was a couple of a couple weeks. It sold on a um a preempt um to Sarah Canton, who's my editor at St. Martin's Press. And she had more ideas. <laughs> so, but we actually talked about them because one of her um we talked about them before I got the contract. And um there were two things she wanted to run by me. One was a thought for restructuring the novel, which was an it's amazing having just listed um, for you the incredible amount of input input I'd already had that no one, myself or any of the smart people who'd worked on it before had thought of, but it was something that made a lot of sense. And the other was that she wanted to wait to bring it out until 2021. It's just definitely a summer release and summer 2020 would have been a little tight. And as we now know, summer 2020 probably wouldn't have been a great time yeah probably to not. have a debut novel come out <laughs> so um i was delighted i thought her ideas made a lot of sense i was very excited to work with her and um once we had that conversation then the offer came i think the next day so um a preempt as you know and i don't know if most of your listeners know is sort of a, a handsome offer that takes it off the table the other um editors have a very brief window to right uh, to read it and respond um so it's not crazy it's not like some wild auction or something but <laughs> it was um it was good enough and i was so thrilled with her thoughts and she's been an absolutely spectacular editor i got unbelievably lucky that's great well uh i guess the next question would be uh, are you writing a second novel now I am writing a second novel. <laughs> I had, you know, you do some world building in these, um, you know, when you create a community like Haven Point. And I thought, gosh, you know, people might want another novel set in the same place. And I was completely resistant to this idea. I have a slightly rebellious streak. And I wanted to write a novel about a biographical fiction novel about a great, great aunt of mine who was an artist and a suffragette and a all around interesting character. And I was on vacation last summer and I was in Maine and I thought, wait, why don't I bring my great aunt to, to Haven Point? And I came up with a story with three interwoven narratives because I, unlike most people, debut novelists <laughs> are famous for their ambition because you don't know what you're doing. And so you bite off way more than you can chew. And most of them learn with a second novel to do something a little perhaps less complicated or sweeping or extravagant, but not me. I've added a third narrative <laughs> and I've also parked the whole story for the second novel in the 1890s. So I'm adding more historical research and, um, but it's a fun story. I'm excited. I've been, it isn't done but I've been spending a lot of time working on it. It's pretty well developed. Um, and I did NaNoWriMo, the National Novel Writing Month, last November and worked out pretty much one, one of the narratives almost completely and made good progress on the second one. So, 
So when you say that you're working on these narratives, do you do you find in, in your writing and your editing process that you write one narrative and then you kind of weave them together in the editing process? So um, in a way, yes. I'm backing up a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think sure. with Haven Point, I... I, the story that I came up with, which was really over the first few weeks that I was thinking about, really ended up being the story to a large extent. But I and I knew that when I started the big beats, um, and so I had sort of a rough outline. I, I, I knew where the story was going. I knew what the ending would be and what the big beats were. I did end up weaving some more in along the way, but I wrote it basically in sections. So I didn't have a detailed outline. Mm-hmm. It was kind of fun in that way because, you know, it's very creative. It's coming up with the whole story. You know, the entire arc is a neat creative process, too. But then how are you going to tell it? You know, it's you know something is going to happen in one particular part of the novel, but how how are you going to make that happen? You know, from whose perspective and what are the scenes that, that will comprise it? Um, and so I tackled each one of those individually and wrote them individually. Um the original structure of Haven Point was different. Sarah had what we ended up with these two interwoven narratives um, was was not the way I had originally written it. It works much, much better. Um, <laughs> and i I realized that once it got right it, it got written um and once I really started to tackle the 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 rewrite that I did for my editor at St. Martin's, this one um. I, I outlined a lot more um, because you realize how much you end up tossing out <laughs> when you <laughs> write the entire thing beginning to end. Um, and I, I just learned a lot from the first novel. So I'm outlining and it has to be woven together before I write it because the stories are so, um, the, the threads are pretty tight between them. So um, I will probably, and I, I didn't write anything that wasn't fully outlined. Um, and I will probably end up writing the other two narratives, like I said, separately, but the story's going to be very, 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 um, sort of, I'll, I'll know exactly how I'm telling the story and exactly how each narrative will unfold before I completely tackle each one. Gotcha. Well, well, given your experience with Haven Point and now working on your second novel, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? I think, um, obviously, this is it's going to sound hackneyed. I know everyone says it, but <laughs> I think the best thing you can do for your writing is reading. Um, I don't. I didn't get an MFA. Um, every time I say that, I picture people saying yeah no kidding (laughs) (laughs) but i um i do think i absorbed a lot of the conventions of novel writing and i would imagine this is true i don't i've never really written short stories but i imagine if you you know want to write short stories the great thing to do is consume a lot of them um i just think from reading you know hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of novels i understood a lot about how to you know how to go about it um i made a lot of mistakes but the one thing i feel like i did well was i i knew when something wasn't working i didn't Mm -hmm. always know immediately how to fix it i would and occasionally i would resist it and want to just be satisfied with how i had written it but i couldn't let something rest until 
I dealt with it. I knew when I had too much exposition and it was affecting the pacing, for example. And, um, you know, it's it's hard when that happens because it means you have to take something that might be a three or four paragraphs and condense it into something much smaller that has the same impact, which is um, a good writerly exercise, uh, but challenging. Um, so I would say reading is the best thing you can do um, and a willingness to take advice. I mean, I had I was I don't know why, but I had, I suppose, sort of a natural humility about this. I was it never bothered me that someone might have a better idea. Um, and I also had, I think, reasonable discernment. I mean, I, mm-hmm. you know, as I said, I had, I used a professional editor at one point and I would say immediately 65, 70% of her suggestions I thought were fantastic. And, and there were some I didn't end up agreeing with, but there were others mm-hmm. that I initially didn't, but I ended up moving in her direction on. So um, finding good readers you trust. Um, it doesn't have to be a hired editor. That was a luxury. Um, but there are, uh, you know, you can't listen to everybody. Everyone's going to have different thoughts. But an openness um, and also confidence in your own in your own discernment, as I said, um, I think is probably what helped me the most. Sure. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? I, um, most recently I read, um, a, it's more auto fiction. So it's almost combining the two. Martin Amos, who is a British writer, his father was Kingsley Amos, the novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, he recently, relatively recently, um, released his, uh, inside story, um, which is again, somewhat autobiographical, but sort of bleeds into fiction. It's a really interesting, very, uh, he's been, I think some of the critics haven't loved the structure there. It it is a little odd Mm -hmm. Um, and it's very discursive, but I like him a lot. He's very funny. Um, I prefer if I'm reading literary fiction, a little humor is nice leavening and he's, he's amusing. He was very good friends with Christopher Hitchens, who was the late Christopher Hitchens, who was an interesting public intellectual. And so, um, a lot of the novel is about that. And it's also about his relationship with Saul Bellow. So I found it fascinating. I love his humor. I love British writers in general. And I thought that was terrific. Another I really enjoyed completely different. Jenny Fields wrote um, a biographical fiction, Age of Desire, about Edith Wharton. And I originally picked it up for research purposes because sort of time period-wise, um, coincides with my second novel. And um, I wound up, found it incredibly engaging, completely forgot that I was supposed to be thinking about it in re- more <laughs> clinical terms. She, Jenny Fields is very good in terms of historical fiction at weaving in very seamlessly historical details. You don't feel clubbed over the head with them. Right. And so I love that. And then um, another one, not maybe not quite so recent, but a great favorite of mine that's also different was Linda Holmes's um Evie Drake starts over, which she she put out a couple of years ago, and it took me a little while to get to it, but it was great fun. She's a you know it's a romantic story, a crackling humor, great dialogue, and I um, had a lot of fun with that. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they're interested in learning more about you and your debut novel, Haven Point? Oh, thank you. Um, 
So I do have a website, virginiahume.com. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Virginia Hume and on Instagram at Virginia Hume and on Facebook. I don't know what the address is, Virginia Hume yeah. author. Um, so I'm everywhere. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me everywhere. I did public <laughs> relations. I'm all over social media. <laughs> I don't know if I've made the transition to using these platforms <laughs> for my authorly purposes, but but there I am. And I'm always happy to engage with people, especially after this long year of engaging with almost nobody. Exactly. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Virginia Hume, author of the debut novel, Haven Point. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Virginia, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much, Jeff. It was fun. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Haven Point by Virginia Hume, narrated by Cassandra Campbell, available from Macmillan Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. Prologue August 2008 Haven Point, Maine. Marin. Marin took her mug of coffee outside and sank into the wicker love seat. Sky would finally arrive the following day. Marin had so much she needed to tell her granddaughter. The conversation was long overdue, but Marin was still uncertain how to go about it, or even where to begin. From the water came the sound of a horn and Marin looked up to see a race underway. For the next half hour, she watched sailboats fly across the bay, white sails trimmed to harness the brisk breeze. The boats rounded their mark and went behind Gunnison Island, but from her perch high on the cliff, Marin could still catch glimpses of the mastheads when they emerged from behind clumps of spruce, like stealthy hunters gliding between coverts. The cannon shot signaling the end of the race startled Marin from her reverie. She had been like this since her daughter died six months earlier, wavering between agonizing grief and a strange fugue state. Most days, she had found herself sitting in this very spot for hours, just staring out at the water. If Georgie was right, and she usually was, the hurricane barreling toward the coast could cause problems on Haven Point. It was hard to imagine, given the crisp air and sapphire sky today, but Marin had spent enough summers here to know how quickly the skies could change. With no more effort than it took to wipe a cloth across a dusty shelf, a storm could mock their efforts to tame this wild peninsula. Go ahead, build your roads, carve your paths, plant your gardens. Never forget who's really in charge, though. She and Skye would be fine in four winds, of course. The old house had faced down plenty of weather in its day. Marin sat listening to the ocean, engaged in its violent, noisy, age-old battle with the rocks below. That strangely pacifying sound was the heartbeat of this house. She'd always thought of four winds as a living thing, pulsing, thrumming, speaking to her. She had loved it from the first even when she so mistrusted the community outside its doors. Skye did not know it yet, but four winds would be hers some day. Marin had planned to leave it to both her children. But a few years earlier, Billy had made his wishes clear. I love it there, but I've lived abroad my whole adult life. Let Annie have the house, he'd said. 
She wouldn't want it. You never know, Billy replied with a gentle smile. She just might decide to come back to Haven Point someday. Billy had been right. In the end, the very end, Annie had wanted to come back. Her granddaughter did not know this yet either. After the memorial service, Skye had asked what they would do with the ashes. We can figure it out later, Marin had said. Skye had been satisfied. She had no reason to imagine her mother, flaky on her best day, downright reckless on her worst, had left detailed instructions on that or any subject. There was so much Skye didn't understand about her mother. Marin rose and went inside to the living room. Her eyes took in the books, trophies, and pictures that crowded the shelves. They were all there, the demarest women, layered over one another like a fossil record, even Annie. Her daughter might have abandoned this house, but four winds had not returned the favor. She was everywhere. Her name next to Charlie's on the Stinniford Cup trophy, her face in photographs, her soul in paintings and drawings. And she lived on in sky, too. Marin smiled at the memory of Oliver's reaction all those years before, when Annie told them she had decided to have a baby. Ah, artificial insemination. Oliver had nodded in his doctorly way, as if she had told him she planned to try a new heartburn medication. What an interesting idea. Do clinics provide this service to single women? I think so. I'm still looking into it, Annie had said breezily. If not, Flora said she would pretend she's my lover. How Oliver had not fallen out of his chair at that moment, Marin would never know. But of course, he was careful with Annie after everything that happened. They promised to love Skye, to do all they could to help raise her. They hadn't realized what they were signing up for, but it never mattered. From the first moment they were so beguiled by the little redhead, they would have cheerfully laid down their lives for her. Still, Skye saw Haven Point as her mother had. Beautiful on the surface, petty and snobbish underneath. Marin understood. She had once felt the same way. It was only in the worst moment of her life that she realized what she'd missed. Just as the big storms wiped out Haven Point Road, exposing the bedrock beneath, it had taken grief and pain washing everything away for Marin to finally see the community's sturdy foundation, its titanic heart. Marin recalled a maxim Annie used to share with her art students at the start of each semester. Everything depends on the quality and direction of light. It was only in the last year that Annie had finally applied this lesson to her own life, that she relinquished the story she had clung to for so long about what had happened here and who was responsible. By then, it had been too late. But it was not too late for Skye. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen. On sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money.